Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And, uh, you know, we're we're still in our respective places. Haven't been out in a long time. Uh, Well, right after we record the shows, I'm going to go up to the Coast Place for the first time since all the craziness happened. Oh, that's good. Yeah, we we're finally going into phase three in of reopening in BC, and uh, so going up there's not a big deal. We're still uh, in phase one. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of people and a lot of challenges. There's a lot of people very uh, adamant on getting out in the sunshine and being with each other, and uh, we'll see what happens. But anyway, um, uh, I have an interesting story. Tell me. This has happened to me before, but never so vividly. So, I'm doing, you know, this show called Blazer Train. Yeah. On uh, YouTube. And uh, it's topical. So, the next topic that I'm working on is the is the Blazer component life cycle. So, all of the ways that you can hook the life cycle of a component or a page and the overridable virtual methods and, uh, you know, disposing and all that stuff. And I started a demo and, uh, you know, a little demo app. And I was thinking of how I can make this a little better. And I, I dreamt the solution. Hmm. I, I dreamt the solution. And, you know, it's amazing when you're dreaming that things, real things get surreal, right? So, sure. you're, you're, you don't know if you you're find yourself in an amalgamation of places and with a a combination of people that never really were there in real life that kind of thing happens all the time and technology never works in dreams like using a trying to use a computer or a phone that they're always broken Mm -hmm. right they never do what you expect them to do however i find and this was particularly vivid that code is absolutely perfectly logical and I don't mean code on a screen, just thinking about algorithms and how you would do things like the solutions are there in your subconscious and they don't get jumbled up and they, like it's just pure logic. It blows my mind. And then today, <laughs> I actually implemented in using a, a, something I had never done before and I dreamt it. How fun is that? That's really interesting. I, I mean, I often wake up with phrases in my mind of the way I want to explain something, that kind of thing. But I don't know that I've ever woken up with code in my head like that. Yeah, and I mean, it wasn't code per se, but but the whole idea of, you know, oh, I'm going to have a collection of these and I'm going to iterate through them and this is how I'm going to uh, demo this particular thing, yeah, right? Like I a, mean, it's dreaming architecture. Yeah, I was dreaming the architecture. <laughs> and it was totally solid. I knew it, when I sat down after my coffee, I, I knew exactly what to do. Nice. And it just took a few minutes to implement. That's cool. I don't man. remember seeing the code in my dream, but I remember thinking about it and going right. through it. So cool. Yeah, awesome. Anyway, that's my story. Let's uh, get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? Well, this is something that happened back uh, in uh, June, June 16th. I guess it's still June, isn't it? But, June while uh, we're recording, not when yeah. we publish. Yeah, yeah. So, this is a blog post by James Newton King. Brilliant, man. Yeah. 
uh, grpc-web for .NET is now available. Awesome. So, grpc, we talked to Sean Wildermuth about that. We had talked about it before a little bit, but this is uh, Google's open source RPC implementation that um, uses a binary protocol that is uh, <clears throat> faster than using JSON and and APIs and stuff. And that it's just really kind of funny that James Newton King would be the one to sort of announce Jason.net guy. Yeah, yeah. That is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The JSON guy, but it's cool. They um, automatically uh, generate uh, classes for you. Right. And generate proto files for you. So there's a lot of tooling in there and it also works really, really well in blazer applications. Oh, okay. So you're using it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually used it when it was in beta and uh, essentially will have the data that gets sent over the wire. Compared to JSON. Compared to JSON, yeah. Which, of course, was the terse for a much terser thing than, say, SOAP. Like, you can yeah, see XML, the path yeah. we're on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, XML is sort of the the bloated version of all of this. And it's kind of funny that you, you remember the days of remoting when we had a binary formatter. Yeah, that was, super lean. It was faster and, uh, you know, it was sending less data, but it also was tricky because you couldn't read it and all of that stuff. And now it's sort of, you know, that binary protocol is sort of back. It's like as long as we have the tools to serialize and deserialize and we have the tools to generate those classes then we don't really have to ever touch that stream of data it's really just for transport and let's face it xml was never that human readable in the first place you don't lie to us so right about that (laughs) (laughs) oh my god talk about nightmares that's true yeah and i mean json was more legible definitely Yes, but in the end, who cares about legibility? They it does does it a you know, does it pass your tests? Can your machine read it? Can other machines read it? Good enough. Yeah, I mean, the only time I want to look at JSON is when something doesn't work, and I want to find out what it is. Yeah, you know, true enough. But it's a totally different layer, right? Yep. All right. Well, that's what I got. Who's talking to us, man? I grabbed a comment off of show sixteen seventeen, which we did back in January of twenty nineteen with one of Arnon Axelrod. We were talking about test automation because I know we're going to talk about testing all day today. And Mm -hmm. uh, so, I wanted to circle back on this particular topic because obviously, tools like Independ are part of your automation suite. And this particular comment comes from Matt Thornton. It's a year old. And he says, it seems to me that one of the best reasons to having a solid TDD or test-driven development practice is not only the did I uh, did what I just build actually do what it's supposed to do, but also... Did what I just build not break something that's been in and working for ages? Yeah. Regression testing is so important, but it seems to get overlooked a lot in this new agile build fast release cycle way of doing things. It seems nowadays that consumer focused products are sort of okay from a collateral damage perspective. Good line. (laughs) If the latest release has got a few bugs in it. Which is true because we have the cloud now to just sort of roll out new versions. So you don't have to get everything right up front. Uh, but Matt goes on to say, uh, but in a business setting, the tolerance for breaking things is so much lower. Yes. You've got a working piece of software that the company's counting on. You push out a new feature and break the old one. People get pretty grumpy about that. Uh, but it, I think regression yeah. testing is hard because you, you know, you can't, can't anticipate all of those things. Mm, mm. 
and it's one of those cases where it's only when you do break it that you build a test to figure out that that's what that thing was breaking, then fix the break. Yeah. If you're not too panic struck over things. So Matt, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And we read them all. And sometimes we reply. Mm-hmm. Mm, depends. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. I you could go there, huh? All yeah. right. I couldn't help myself. I hope Patrick got that joke. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, bring on Patrick. Patrick Smakia has been fortunate to start programming as a child on 8-bit computers in the 80s. Woo. Yeah. Let's hear it for the 80s. Then he naturally graduated in math and software engineering. And after a decade of C++ programming and consultancy, Patrick got interested in the brand new .NET platform in 2002. He uh, wrote the bestseller book in French on .NET and C-sharp, published by O'Reilly, and also did manage some more academic and professional courses on the platform in C-sharp today, of course. Uh, he is the end-depend guy, and we're going to talk to him about all sorts of things. Uh, welcome, Patrick. Hi, Carl. Hi, Richard. You know, um, using end-depend has been described to me, like having Scott Hanselman looking over your shoulder while you're writing code and going, I don't know if I'd do it that way. You're going to have to pay for that <laughs> later, man. <laughs> wow, that, that's that's nice. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that smells pretty funky. Actually, I talked with Scott at the very, very early beginning and uh, the tool started in 2004 as an open source uh, tool Wow! at the very early stage of, uh, of .NET because at that time I was consulting and I needed such a tool with some, some metrics from a Robert Cecil Martin book that I'm sure you, mm -hmm. you know about, the, the pattern practice book, etc. So I wanted to experiment that in the, in the real world. And then the, I noticed that uh, in the community, uh, there had been a lot of downloads of the, the open source version. And I had so, so many ideas to, to improve it. And it became actually a commercial product in uh, February uh, 2007. Mm. And I think the same week, I mean, just because Scott and Simon like so well, the same week Scott contacted me. Hey, it looks interesting. Did you want to do a podcast mm -hmm. or something? So you can find uh, on the web uh, the, the a podcast from like 13 years ago about that and it was very uh, very interesting i was quite impressed actually all the all the right question he was asking like he was really so you know independent is all about code yeah. quality code architecture and uh, testing coverage and uh, and uh, code code evolution with trending and uh, also baseline etc of course in the early days it didn't have all this uh, mm. this feature but I was impressed that uh, it was like Scott and Selman uh, was a specialist in, in this topic, you know, while, while he has, he's actually a specialist in so many yeah. topics. But uh, I was quite impressed, actually. Yeah, I found that show. It's episode 51 of Hansel Minutes uh, mm. back in 2007. That is an wow. old show. Yeah. 
And the .NET was still, uh, at that point, I think it was .NET yeah, 2. Yeah, it would still be .NET 2. Yeah, yeah, it was .NET 2 days, but it was still, it became to be mature. And uh, actually, uh, at that time, we couldn't realize all the all, all the way ahead we had, like all this .NET 4 and, and now uh, .NET Core and then .NET 5, etc. We couldn't imagine that, uh, that the road would be so long, like C Sharp 9 now, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's really uh, really an interesting journey. Yeah, well, and I think 2007 is before uh, Scott had joined Microsoft too. So, like, it's a yeah, it was before. Yeah, yeah, totally different world. Yeah, I think he was working at Corillian, if I remember well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And he was an, and he was a regional director. Yeah, uh, you know, they, we were. Yeah, we were yeah. all so young and and and, and having a, such a good time. <laughs> so was the so was the stack. I mean, you're right. It's 20 years. We've gone through all these twists and turns, <laughs> and uh, and Independ is still relevant, right? Like I, people still depend on it to keep software healthy. Yeah, because uh, I think the, the, the team grew, and I think it, it's very. I mean, my, my way, my way of doing this. I'm the founder, and I'm still the, the the team lead. And my way of seeing things is that it's it's important to improve because there there are a lot of ideas, a lot of innovation around all the, the, the topic touched by the tool, like architecture, etc. So it's important to keep up with everything. And also, it's, it's just my passion, actually. So so it's a lot of fun improving it. There's so many uh, p- pieces to Endepend that, um, you, you, you know, some of it seems like magic, but deep down, you're really just pulling apart how uh, code is compiled and how it's accessed and how it's built and um, dependency graphs for example you know you don't you don't just make those you have to know you have to know how to you know read those trees and I guess you know having that basic stuff now we can start talking about code smells and things that seem like magic to me like how how do you program a code smell? And say, uh, that doesn't look right, you know? Actually, it's very, I think it's very relevant to the introduction about uh, very logical things. It, the thing is that NDPEN became commercial uh, even, even way before Roslyn appeared. At that time, we had the, we had the old version of FXCOPE. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for, fortunately for, for the tool is that NDPEN is doing things differently than Roslyn. And it's, it's, it's not a competitor. And of, of, I'm really glad it's not a competitor because then I would certainly do something mm. else because Rosalie is so powerful. But the thing is that NDPEN has a 100 foot view of your yeah. code base. So you can, you can write rules like, like I don't want the database using the UI, for example, which would be very table or things like that. And uh, while while Roslyn and also Resharper and uh, all, all, all those very popular tooling in static analysis, they are more about code flow. Like I want to remove my using and I want to make sure this reference will never be null, etc. But uh, actually now we have new level for that. But uh, you know this, it's more in detail. While Independ is more a coarse view of the code base, and and actually the the, the big idea. I had, and, and, and uh, you, you said that you have ID when you're sleeping. And for me, the ID come more when I'm jogging. Wow. Actually, I, I like jogging. And uh, yeah, yeah, and really, we, I, I'm not sure if there is, because there is more oxygen in the brain. Yeah. 
I, I don't know, but <laughs> good good idea came to me when uh, I'm, I'm joining. And, and and the good idea was uh, actually it was in 2006, just before the, the project become commercial. The idea was that you could query the code the same way that you can query a database with a SQL. Yeah. Okay. And and, and that's really the backbone of uh, of right. Indipen. So all the features are using this yeah. backbone. Link, right? So the yes, we can we call it CQ mm. link, which is called query link. But it was e- even before link actually. So at that time, it was just a very simple SQL version wow. for code. Uh, 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 and then yeah, uh, in 2011, it became a, a link provider actually. Hmm. So actually, what we're doing is that the, the tool is trying to gather as much information as it can from your code. Okay, so you you quoted that the IL code mm-hmm. is very important, but also passing the source code. And also from the PDB, you know, the, these files are very, uh, very contains a lot of very interesting info to to join the the binary code and the and the source mm-hmm. code actually, and also from the code coverage. So, independent uh, supports like Encover, dot cover, Open Cover, and Visual Studio coverage. So, whatever coverage you're doing, you can you can import it. So, actually, from there, independent try to harness as much information as it can. Okay, and and then it actually it populates a code model, okay, which is its own code model. It's not it's not the Rosin yeah. code model. It's a different code model, and it's more um, it's a higher view of your code. So, for example, in Rosin, it requires a, a bit of work to know the number of line of code, for example, of a method or or comments or. Maybe even more works if you want to import uh, coverage into your, your Rosin model. And also dependency, like it's a bit of work to know, for example, uh, for a method which feeds is assigned, for example, or, or read, or which namespace is used, etc. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the independent code model is uh, provide all those kind of information out of the box. Yeah. Okay. And then in a very few characters, in three, four lines, you can already write a code query that, that is useful. Hmm. Okay, and, uh, and, and that's a code query. So basically, it's exactly the same way when you query a relational database. And the interesting point is that the query can become a rule. Like if, you, if a query has so much, you can write a query. And for example, I want to know which method has a cyclomatic complexity higher than, for example, yeah. 30. Mm-hmm. Okay, so cyclomatic complexity is a very popular metric in code quality that counts the number of, uh, of paths that the, the thread executing the method can take. Okay, and the, the more you have and the more your method is supposed to be complex, and uh, like every if, every else. Yeah. Nested ifs and loops, notoriously bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the more you have, it's really normal to have a few of those because then your code yeah. is just near and it's not practical. But at a point, if it's too much in a method or even a great in a tip, in a type or in a class, then that can become a problem. So, so you can really literally write a link query that looks like from M in application methods where M dot cyclomatic complexity higher than 30 and then select M. Yeah. And, and here, in a few characters, you already have a, a, a rudimentary code smell. 
Okay, and uh, you can you can add up um, a header which is actually not C sharp, not link, but which is independent. So we can add some header, and this header could look like one if count greater than zero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to be advised when uh, when there are such kind of methods. Okay, and and here you already have a Kotzman. And and what's what's become very interesting is when you when you start to mix all this aspect, all the view of that independent has as you code. So for example, there are uh, several views that I like to mix and uh, I think it's very relevant. And um, when I say I like to mix, it's because we are dog-fooding our own tooling. This is very satisfying uh, as a tool developer to use your mm -hmm. own tool to, to debunk actually your own code. So that's very interesting. But for example, three, as two aspects that works well together are the complexity, as, uh, as explained, uh, the code coverage, okay, and also the diff. Yeah, right. So why the diff is another aspect I didn't quote, is that independent, you can take two snapshots of your code base made by the tool, and then you can diff them. And then independent can tell you this method has been changed or comment of this method has been changed, mm -hmm. etc. So you can very quickly write a code rule or a code query that, that could say, for example, I want complex method that has been changed. So they have been refactored. Okay. Or that have been added. Okay. And also that are poorly code covered by, uh, covered by test. Okay. And, and here you have a perfect occurrence of, uh, what is killing quality and how you can have bugs right. and, yeah, it's, it's uh, just with this three criterion that you mix, okay, complex method that you are refactoring without even bothering testing. I can imagine that after using Endepend for probably a very short period of time, if you're developing every day, uh, it just makes you a better developer because, you know, it's almost gamified. Yeah, actually, yes, we try to gamify it and also make it even more useful with the actually the technical depth mm -hmm. analogy which is uh, so it's very famous is uh, i'm not sure who coined that uh, i know that martin fuller was very early on that but i'm not sure it was martin fuller yeah it's an old term but uh, yeah so it's very popular analogy and uh, th that basically says that uh, you can have depth in your code if you are doing things the wrong way if you are too quick uh, too quick and dirty. So when you are doing things quick and dirty, at a point, these things, you will have to fix them because this, this is not maintainable. Code. Right. And you're, yeah. and then depend actually and, and, quantifies how much technical debt you're getting into as you're writing code. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it, yeah. And it tries to be smart about that. So for example, it won't say that, uh, uh, a, a, a little complex method doesn't have the same technical debt as a very yeah, complex right. method, for example. Okay, so there, there are there are formula. An interesting point is that all these link queries, okay, they, that are rules actually, each one contains some relevant formula to to its own domain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so for example, for code coverage, it can count the number of uh, of scope or the number of line of code not covered, for example. And then it tried to assess the amount of work. Uh, so the amount of work is uh, sized by developer time. Yeah. So for example, it can be 20 minutes or three days, for example, at eight hours a day. 
And then for each issue, it will find the tool will try to, uh, to assess, uh, a good estimation of how long it will take to, to fix the problem. Okay. And then this introduced not only a very interesting tool for manager and team leaders, but also it's a kind of gamification, like, hey, today, uh, I decreased the, the date, for example, from four hours, for example. So, so that, that's very interesting. But one, one very, very important point I want, I want to, to describe is that when you are using a tool, a static analysis tool, so also just to be clear, static analysis is in opposition with dynamic analysis. Static, it means that the tool doesn't try to execute your code. Okay. It just look at your code. Uh, the code has data. Uh, tenet, you know, and uh, it looks at your code and it tries to infer information while dynamic analyzer uh, executes your code and uh, then gives you information about code execution. So it's a static analysis. Yeah, Visual Studio does pretty good dynamic analysis built in. You know, that's what all the squiggly lines are about. Yeah, uh, not, not really. Uh, you, don't, you cannot really, uh, um, from the static... Uh, view of mm -hmm. your code. It's a thing. It's very hard to have some algorithm that can tell you anything interesting about uh, what what will happen at runtime. Right. Yeah. How many objects will be built and and how long it will take if the performance yeah, are, very are good questions. or not. I was thinking hard about the cyclomatic uh, complexity uh, part because if you've got a freshly written routine and it comes up with a high level cyclomatic complexity, obviously you should rethink it. Right. Like that's sort of a Classical code smell says this is more complicated than it needs to be. But then I'm thinking about an older piece of code that's been modified multiple times and sort of now bumps across that threshold. And maybe that's the gauge that says, is it time to refactor this? We've now made it new enough different things that it's become more complicated than it needs to be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's actually the, the legacy. Huh? We have a term in software for that, the, the, the legacy problem when you have a lot of codes uh, untouched or very, very fragile. Mm -hmm. That's when you, you can break it very quickly. And, and that's one point, uh, the initial point I wanted to underline is that any static analyzer, so once again, it can be Roslyn, Sharper, and Deepen. One big problem you have with this tool is that when you run against uh, a legacy, okay, which, and, and this kind of tool actually are even more useful than legacy, mm -hmm. the problem you will have is that you will get literally thousands of issues and uh, even years of technical right. debt, for example. So you, you need to assign years of man man days to uh, to fix it all. And, and this is definitely not uh, practicable. Nobody will say, okay, from now I want to improve quality and stop development. Or maybe you can do that for a week or two, but definitely not for three or four months on a large code basis. So to counter this uh, this problem, so the problem of running a static analyzer against your legacy, the the strategy of NDPEN is a bit uh, different. Is a uh, is actually I mentioned that you can do diff of snapshots. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and NDPEN gives you all the absolute value for any metrics, for example, line of code or mm -hmm. number of issue, but it, it gives you also the diff value. So, for example, the number of new issues since the baseline, the number of issue fixed right. since the baseline, or how new code or code refactored 
discovered by test and etc. So with NDPEN, it will be very easy to gather all this information because the idea is that from now, and from now it means from the baseline, okay? Typically the baseline is the, the last version of your code in production. Right. Okay, so from there, from the baseline, you want to be clean. You want to be yeah. green. Now, I, I wonder if diff is the right term there, Patrick. I almost think delta, right? That all you really want to know is, is the software getting better? And and Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the, yeah delta is, a, is certainly a better term. You know, I, I think you guessed uh, I'm French. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> but certainly, yeah. But, even, yeah. but in French also, delta is, a, is a definitely yeah. a good term. So the idea is to really control control the data because you cannot have a big control on the legacy. And, and what's interesting in the delta is that you, you not only have the new code, I mean, the, the new classes and the, the new methods, mm -hmm. etc., but you can also have the refactored one. Right. Yeah. And, and that's very interesting because the refactor means that you are touching the legacy. You are daring to touch the yeah. legacy. Yep. Okay. So to refactor it. And then you can start to improve quality on the legacy only once it's necessary to refactor it. Yeah, and then you can show that you provided value by doing that. Exactly. Th th then the depth was decreased step by step, version after version, of course. And uh, the, the idea is definitely not to reach 0% uh, depth. And uh, the, the idea is just improved. The idea is that uh, developer get aligned. You know, they, they get uh, a line of the good practices you want to, to do now. And the, the default, I hope the default rule set of independent can help them mm -hmm. uh, on this. So uh, as all the static analyzer, you know, it, the rules is not only logic, but it's also documentation, description. Yeah. So for example, there are rules, for example, for dead code. Uh, and then it explain what, why, why having dead code is not good. And certainly for a junior developer, it's not that obvious. So. So then you can start educating the team and then the team can get aligned to uh, to the good practices you want to have on your Absolutely. Projects. And Patrick, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. .NET Rocks is being sponsored today by Text Control, the company behind TX Text Control, a Microsoft Word-inspired document editor library and document processing engine for your applications. TX Text Control is fully customizable and programmable and is available for most platforms, including ASP.NET MVC, Web Forms, WPF, and Windows Forms. Recently, they released their Angular and Node.js versions that allow the integration of WYSIWYG document editing into your web apps. TX Text Control really shines in applications that do mail merging and reporting, where Microsoft Word-compatible templates are merged with JSON data in the client or pure server-side applications that create Adobe PDF documents. So try TX Text Control for free and see the live demos at textcontrol.com slash demos. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey. And we're talking to our friend Patrick Smackia of Independ about this, I mean, long-lived, it's been more than 10 years product and certainly something that lots of folks depend upon. I got to think that the brownfield implementation is is almost canonical. That this is the way you get your hands around an existing piece of code and start to be able to improve it. Without a tool like Independent, it's it's a a ball of tar. There's just too many choices on where to start. 
I'm thinking about your the visualizer specifically for for classes to put and depend on to an existing application and then to get that visualizer says, this is where your app spends its time. These are the largest classes that do the most work uh, and and maybe need, are the most fragile. Yeah, exactly. So, indeed, at the beginning, actually, Carl, what um, say about visualizing your code mm. during your dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, with Independ, the ID, uh, as with some other software, but I talked about uh, code querying, you know, the, the same way you can query a relational database, but it's with link. But an interesting point also is that you can have code visualization. Mm-hmm. And, and Independ has uh, several diagrams. So certainly the most intuitive one is the, the dependency graph. Okay. And uh, actually two months ago, we, we released the new 2021 version, uh, 2020.1 version with uh, the dependency graph totally uh, refactored. And, and certainly the dependency graph is, uh, is the golden uh, visualization tool for, for uh, a large code base and to really know about your architecture why it's too monolithic, where, where it is cohesive or not cohesive, where it's too co- where there is too much coupling, you know. All, all this, you can visualize them. And uh, one point with NDPEN is that I mentioned that we have a code model, that we are populating it with uh, many information we can gather from your code. <clears throat> and, 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 and this uh, code model not only is very uh, short in memory, and uh, the last thing we want is to slow down Visual Studio, and uh, because Independent is a Visual Studio extension, but also it's very fast, so it's, it's extremely optimized. And uh, now we came to the point where we can visualize like thousands and even tens of thousands of classes at once, live. Okay, with all the dependency and so. I, I just don't know how and, something uh, with that many dependencies doesn't just look like a mess. Like when when is ten thousand classes ever looked good in a dependency model? <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, actually, you when when you have a real real world project, typically it's in a few thousands, yeah. few thousands classes, and and, and actually uh, even more. And it, it can be very interesting to not only view what what class are if you want if you select a class, for example, not only you want to know which class are calling it, but also the recursive, the colors of colors and the colors of colors of colors, etc. So with, with Independ, what is actually a code graph? With Independ, it's very easy to view, visualize this kind of code graph to know exactly if I touch this class, what I'm, am I going to uh, break or potentially right. break? So, so it also means what, what should I have to, to test also, uh, typically because it's potentially broken if you, if you touch it. And uh, so with Independent, all, all this information came very uh, naturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also visualize where your code is too monolithic. And, and here, there is this notion of component that is not very clear. And actually, we rarely use the word component in the .NET area, even in the mm-hmm. Java, actually. Because a component, if you look at the academic book, it's a unit of development and a unit of reuse. Uh, unit of testing, uh, etc. So you have a lot of definition for a component, but basically it's a unit. And we know that a component is not a class, but typically it's a grape of class, okay? Because uh, a class cannot work alone. It's not an island. Uh, a class is not an island. It cannot work alone. 
So typically, a component is a grape of class. Mm -hmm. So typically, it can be a namespace or a few namespaces or hierarchy of namespaces, or it can be a project or even a few projects. Okay, but the, the, the problem is that this term of component is not very well uh, defined. Uh, and, and it can be problematic because what, what, I, what I often view in, uh, in, uh, in, real, in real code base is that you have a few or even a single core assembly. So, yeah, the, the notion of component is not very clarified in the .NET or even the, the JavaScript. Uh, typically, you don't want a component to be a single class because a class is not an island. The class has to work right. with other classes. So typically, a component is a grape of class, okay? And it can be a namespace or hierarchy mm -hmm. of namespace or even projects. And actually, Visual Studio, if you have many projects, and if you consider that your projects or your assemblies as your component, Visual Studio will be very good at telling you, hey, here you have a cycle, mm -hmm. okay? It doesn't permit to have a cycle, but... If you get these large monolithic assemblies, and, and uh, I often see that in the real world with many namespaces, etc., typically it ends up to be monolithic because there is no 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 tool to to say you hey in this in this component everything depends on everything. Right. If you look at it, so so this is a, a super component, and actually it's not really maintainable. And the day, for example, you will have to ma migrate to another UI framework or the day you will migrate to .NET Core. Yeah, you're basically starting over, right? You've built a god class and you have to make a new god. Yeah, or it, can, it can be a god class or it can be a god component. Mm -hmm. But th this, is a, this is a real problem. So with any pen, first you can view, you can assess the problem, okay, because you can visualize yeah. it. And then second, independent, try to consider namespaces as components. Mm -hmm. And it will tell you about dependencies between the namespaces. And uh, it will tell you how, and th there is no, no, no real other tool that can do it the, 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 the way independent do it. But it can tell you that here you have a cycle between, for example, 30 namespaces. Mm -hmm. And it means actually that uh, you can take any of these namespaces, it depends on all the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But uh, there is a rule. Actually, it's, I think it's the biggest link where we, uh, we have in our engine. There is a rule that will try to be smart and that try to say, to say that when you have namespaces mutually dependent, like A and B, A using B, B using A, it try to say you which way should be cut off. Right. Okay, it try to, for example, if you analyze the .NET framework, you will see that system is dependent on system threading, okay? They are, these two guys are using each other, right. mm -hmm. okay? And we all know as a developer that system is, uh, is lower lower uh, level than mm -hmm. the system threading because, for example, string, typically string is lower level than threading, which is a higher level. So it, it doesn't make sense that system is using system threading. Yeah, right. And actually, in all the code bases, when any two components you take that are mutually dependent, there is always a natural way to say, hey, this one should be lower level and this one should be higher level. I'm thinking about code generated by Entity Framework, you know, where you have lots of uh, cycles, circular references, mm -hmm. rather. You know, that, hmm. 
it's an interesting issue, isn't it? Because you didn't write the code. And yet, you know, the, you can run into problems with serialization. You may have to turn on um, specific flags in the, in the JSON formatter. Um, or, you know, the JSON.net, uh, what am I trying to say? System.text.json doesn't even handle some of those things. Mm. So certainly with NDPN, you can adapt the namespace. I, I, I didn't mm. try it, but the, the, the heuristic we have in the, in the namespace cycle, certainly you could adapt to mm -hmm. this kind of code. And, um, because here it's even worse because actually we are talking about a bug. If, if uh, it can be, uh, Uh, serializable, then then at one time you will right, have problem. Right. If you don't detect it at uh, at development time, then it's your client that will detect it. And it's a problem. It's a big big problem actually. So certainly you, you could try to find. But here we are at the limit between static and dynamic mm -hmm. analysis, because maybe statically you cannot see the cycle that will only appear uh, at one time. So I'm I'm not sure about uh, this problem, but. But typically, the, the rule of thumb is that cycle is a problem in software. Yeah. Typically, we like tree, we like hierarchy, and uh, cycle is definitely the right way to, to, to componentize your, your code. So there, there were a book about C++ like a long time ago. Uh, I like to refer to a long time ago because so many guys were so smart, write some very smart things. And uh, it's very important to not forget about all those lessons from the old time. But uh, actually, for all those, we got inspired from uh, John Lacos uh, that wrote a mm. C++ book about uh, levelization. I'm not sure if he calls the term. But the idea is that you don't want any more cycle. And mathematically, when you don't have any more cycle, then you have a hierarchy. And if you have a hierarchy, each component has a level. Right, right. Okay? There are root components that you can say, for example, the root component can They can be the donate framework one, the one that are used by, uh, by every, every, every other. Others. Then, then you have, uh, your application component that are only using, uh, donate framework one. And then you have the level two that are yeah. using the level one, etc. And then you can assign. And also, this is one code metric that NDPEN has. It can give you a level. And if the level cannot be com computed, then it means there is a cycle. So this is another way. Uh, to, to find also a cycle very quickly because the metric is just mm -hmm. here. Okay, but I think that what's important is that not only to get some advices to break the cycle, mm -hmm. like what should I do? Like this method shouldn't use this, this one, uh, this class shouldn't use this one, etc. Which means that I, I, you will have to use things like uh, dependency injection. Okay, you will have typically to write yeah, abstraction. Right. Okay, and because abstraction will cut the the long chain of dependency, and uh, and actually this is another very interesting topic. Uh, yeah, I'm passionate about static mm -hmm. analysis, but uh, you if, hope, if abstraction, yeah, sorry? you would hope you'd be passionate <laughs> about a, a static analysis. <laughs> <laughs> but abstraction, actually, this is something I, I didn't mention yet. But this is a very very important way. To, uh, to architecture your code. And uh, typically, you want abstraction to be at lower level. Mm -hmm. And then it can be used to uncouple two components, for example. So at one time, you want those components that A is using B. 
but uh, at a development time, you don't want them to use each other. Okay, so this this is typically uh, resolved by a dependency injection. Right. So you can also measure up the the depth of call. So how many classes are for eyes using B's using C, etc. So how long how long of these guys do you have? Because obviously, when it's too long, it's time to build up a few abstraction. Okay, but these days there is one one point that is very important to me, that is about testing. Okay, because these days abstraction and uh, special interfaces are used a lot for mocking, for example, and uh, it's all about uh, exercising your code, okay, in a context that is different that you are you intend to do. So typically, you imagine how your code should be architecture. Like in your dream, for example, and and uh, and then at test time, when you try to test your code, you realize that the, what you wrote is not testable. Right. Okay, and this is why actually we we advise to be test first because then you don't you don't come about you don't bump into this untestable uh, problem. Okay, and 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 actually, test is not only. Uh, about uh, regression, about correctness, but it's also about architecture. Right. Because if your code is well, is, t- is testable, certainly you get the good architecture you want to uh, to have maintainable code. Hmm. Because not only you code. Uh, uh, yeah, I would say more maintainable, but architecture is a bigger concept still. You can still have weak architecture, but testable code. Yeah, I, th- I think they help each other, certainly. Normally, this goes hand in hand. Normally, because if you can, if you can mock, if you're testable, I think you're in a good position to to claim that uh, your code would be maintainable and that your your yeah. architecture is, is or at good least enough. to refactor the architecture. What we know for sure is if it's untestable code, it's almost certainly got architectural problems and is going to be difficult to fix. Absolutely, absolutely. And and one one another point that is uh, very important to me. Is that untestability? This is not necessarily a class that is not test at all, but it can be just a little scope in the middle of a long method, just two or three lines mm-hmm. of code. Okay, that cannot be tested. But the thing is that when 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 you have, for example, ninety seven percent test, you can say, "Hey, it's time to go to to home. I did my yeah. job." But the, if you try to reach hundred percent test, then then that, that's very for me. That's very important to, to try to to strive to have hundred yeah. percent test because typically these few percent that are hard to test, and you can be indulgent with yourself and say, okay, I've just have two percent. But the problem is that often the bugs will come yeah. from those ones. When I think of three lines of code that <laughs> I cannot yeah. test, I think link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just because it's such a complex expression, like that's a tough thing to write a test to. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's. I think some very big. Uh, I, I know it, it's a bit uh, drastic, but uh, I like when things are. My, my definition of done is not only hundred percent tested, mm-hmm. but there is another point that uh, we use completely in the, the code base of independent that is very important. It's about contract. So contract is looks like scientific, but actually it's just assertion. Mm-hmm. No matter which implementation of assertion you, you have. But to me, it, it's very, very important to assert everything you can in your code. 
in loops or parameters yeah. like now now the, we shouldn't have any more reliability but for example if you have integer you want to have a specific range or uh, etc so it's very important to assert everything you can mm. because then if your code is 100% tested to me the assertion that you have in your method body the exercised code okay as as much important as the assertion you have in your test code Nice. And as a okay, when I've been leading teams and my team starts pressing a- along assertions, it, to me it says it's a very mature team. They understand the problem space well enough, and they understand their tooling well enough to lay down per- limitation parameters up front. Right? We can assert these things. It's, it's a statement of confidence in my mind. Yeah, I think I think assertions or in the scientific name like contracts. Called by actually my uh, French guys like Bertrand Meyer, you know. But uh, yes. Uh, so of course, he, 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 he Bertrand put a session as a higher level. But but for for the mere mortal, it's very important to just put as much as a, a session every time you assert something in your head when while you are writing code. For example, this integer can be zero, cannot be zero, or this string can be empty. For example. Or, mm. we are, or in a loop also, uh, some assertion to make sure that the loop will end, for example, in, in a, an infinite loop, for example. Or it's very important that you put as much, as many assertions as you can in your code. And even more important is to make sure that right. when you are exercising the code by tests, by running tests, if an assertion gets broken, it's very important to make sure that you you know about this uh, this break the same way that you will know about uh, an assertion breaking in test. And and to me, in my, in my dream, I, w- I would like to have uh, an assertion framework that would work the same way on both sides. You could use the exact same assertion and, uh, and use it exactly the, the same way. So we have only one framework. Microsoft tried to do that with Microsoft contract like 10 years ago, but unfortunately it's not a, it was yeah. not a huge success. And uh, and then this is very this works hand in hand with the hundred percent code coverage uh, idea I mentioned before because if you if you cover hundred percent it means that you are covering all your session you are exercising them okay and uh, because we are doing that for many years on the independent code base I can really attest that uh, it eliminates a lot of regression a lot of problem that that just come because code gets refactored and uh, because we are just human and sometimes we just forget to, to make some checks. Or, so, so sometimes you just introduce bug and a lot of bug can be caught this way automatically. It's kind of goal, like automatically catching some bugs. And if you mix up both assertion and uh, 100% coverage, then you have a very, uh, very solid code, a very high level of correctness. And it's even more important, I think, on the UI code. You know, UI is notoriously very uh, hard to test. It's not easy to test UI. But actually, uh, what we did with NDPEN, we are able to pilot the UI. Okay, so we have some tests that can take like mm-hmm. 10 or 20 seconds. I just pilot the UI exactly the same way as a user would pilot uh, the UI, like select this panel and uh, show a graph of these classes, for example, or whatever. And then uh, it's very hard for us to assert 
in the test that is doing well, but then in the code itself, we get a lot of assertion verified. And if at a point there is a bug, certainly it will be detected this way. So Patrick, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? Uh, so basically now we are working hard to make sure that uh, .NET 5 and uh, Blazor will be very well uh, supported, you know, third class. Yes. Now it's, it's somehow, it works a bit now, but we want to be very solid mm -hmm. because this is the future, of course. Uh, then we also work uh, internally to migrate everything to .NET Core 3, which will anyway become .NET 5, so we can, mm. uh, this is basically the same thing. So we're not yet there. We still have uh, some uh, third-party components that we need to get rid of, which means that there are some logic we need mm -hmm. to implement. And this is a good example of think twice uh, when, you, when you are linking with a third-party framework, because at a point uh, when we have to run another platform, uh, if this framework doesn't work on the other platform, then it will be a problem for you. Yeah. So we are we are there. We are also talking with the uh, Visual Studio people uh, to try gather some information about their plans to to uh, to handle .NET five. You know, there is no to me there as far as I know there is no public plan about how Visual Studio will run on .NET five. Uh, this is okay. certainly not uh, in November when .NET five will be out, but. Later. Just because mm -hmm. we are a Visual Studio extension and we want to to, to follow them, so uh, if at a point Visual Studio is full uh, .NET 5 or even .NET 6, we need to be there as well at the same time with them. So we are talking with them, but uh, there is no public information about that for now. And uh, we have a lot of work also on the Azure DevOps side. I didn't mention, but it's not only a Visual Studio tool, but it's also uh, a DevOps tool. Okay, so there is a, a special SKU for the Azure DevOps extension where you can get a lot of inf all the information mm -hmm. mentioned already. You can also get in the Azure DevOps uh, uh, extension. And also there is a build machine uh, uh, SKU made for things like Jenkins or Bamboo or TeamCity, you know, all those DevOps mm -hmm. uh, CI platform. So, yes, Indivet is also right. a tool for that. And uh, we also have some plans for, for that. That's, uh, that's a bit early, like, but like running on Linux, which would be very important because uh, we don't run yet on Linux. And uh, I mean, more, it's very interesting to see that a lot of our clients uh, have uh, their, all the DevOps uh, chain running on, on Linux. So we need to be there as well uh, within the, the next two years, I think. Interesting that even with a robust product such as Endepend, there's still so much more to do. So much more to do. A lot of, a lot of insight. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great stuff, Patrick. Thanks very much for uh, talking to us. Thanks. And uh, we wish you all the success in the world. Thanks so much, Carl, and thanks for the invitation. You bet. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. 
online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.